I want to invite you to open your Bibles now to Deuteronomy. We're going to take a little one-week break from the series we've been doing and step into Deuteronomy chapter 6. You'll find this passage on page 242 in the Brown Bibles. Deuteronomy 6, it should be familiar to many of you. And we're just going to read from verse 4 to verse 9. says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way And when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Well, I'm sure it's it's not exactly big sort of uh, breaking news to know that the church in the UK, broadly speaking, has been in massive decline not just in recent years, but over decades, and in fact probably over the last 150 years, certainly as a percentage of the population. And there's certainly some exceptions to that. You come to places like London, it's the opposite trend. And amongst young people, often you see the opposite trend. But it's a really interesting factor, isn't it? You ask me, why is that the case? I think it probably comes down to a kind of cocktail of secularism, you know, this kind of... Um, confident belief that we, we, uh, we of, of the modern age, um, that we understand life without God, and of course affluence, the fact that the Western world has never been richer and had more uh, of, of a plush lifestyle than we have today. And so I think that for that, those reasons, when you bring them together, it's led to, to people feeling that there's no need for God for a few reasons. Firstly, that there's no intellectual reason to be a Christian. You need to just bear these three things in mind as we go through. No intellectual reason. I think it was Richard Dawkins who said that we know 99% of all the things um, that are to be known about the universe, which is a pretty confident claim, isn't it? But people think if we can explain everything that we need to know about life, then there's no intellectual reason to, to go to some other explanation, particularly God. People also say, secondly, that there's no moral reason to need to have a Christian faith. Um, I think the general feeling these days is that we've kind of leapfrogged Christianity. We've kind of superseded the morality of Christianity and gone further than it in terms of the bills of human rights and all these kinds of things. And so people think that there's absolutely no reason to have, moral reason to have a faith anymore. And the third thing is that people feel that there's no emotional reason to have a faith. I think this is probably the more fundamental, or the most fundamental of all, that Basically, when, when your life is going well and you don't feel any need for God, there's no desire to seek after him. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians haven't had answers to these things. They haven't known how to respond to the particular pressures of the society that we're in. And the first victims of this have been the children. That The children of, of homes that have sort of had some kind of piety, some kind of faith, have been the first ones to be swept away and to walk away from that. 
Now, I'm not sure if any, if all of you realize, but tonight we're going to be doing a couple of dedications. So we've got um, baby Isla, who's in my mother-in-law's arms at the back, and Lena, who is not to be seen at the moment. But they're both cousins, both little girls, three months apart, and we're going to be praying for them to be dedicated. And I just wanted, first of all, to just bring some clarity to what we're doing, and then, and then uh, I want us to look at this passage in a few minutes. But let me just say, why are we doing this, this dedication? First of all, it's not because we're saying these kids are Christian. Our kids have inherited all kinds of things, good and bad, from us. Um, they're kind of a wonderful concoction of, of their parents. You know, Seth has inherited um, his mother's good looks and my intelligence, which is wonderful. So, um, but one thing you can say for absolute certain is that the faith that we believe is not inherited in any way like that. It's not genetically passed on as a trait from one generation to another. Faith doesn't really go like that, doesn't it? You may have grown up in a, in a home with some kind of faith, but it doesn't mean, it doesn't follow that you know God. Not at all, does it? And, of course, there, there may be some kind of connection. I did grow up in a Christian home. My dad is here tonight. It's a real pleasure to have my parents here this evening. My dad's a pastor. And as a result, I grew up understanding the faith from a young age and, and took it to be my own. But he grew up in a home with no faith whatsoever and made the choice to become a Christian. So it doesn't follow that these things are passed on from one generation to the next. And we don't believe that just because these babies are our babies, that they necessarily have any kind of faith or will indeed have a faith. We hope, we pray that they will, but we don't assume it. So that's not what we're doing tonight. Another thing we're not doing is we're not, we're not trying to make them Christians by what we do when we pray for them this evening. You know, there's some people who, there are many, many people actually, who um, like to baptize their babies um, when they are babies. And uh, I think it's, it's born out of a lot of reasons, and I won't go into them all. But for a lot of people, your average guy on the street who takes their child to go and be baptized as a baby, it's a kind of a superstitious thing, a kind of a magical thing, that there is a kind of act that you can do to the child that will benefit the child, regardless of what faith the child does or doesn't have. And we absolutely just don't believe that at all. I remember some years ago, um, a guy we knew was heading off in the, in the army to, to go and fight in Afghanistan. And it was his first tour of duty. And he was scared stiff. And he, came, he started coming to church and he, and he asked particularly, could he be baptized? And this guy didn't really have any understanding of the faith that he wanted to be baptized into. His feeling was that if he could be baptized, then he'd be safe. It wouldn't matter what had happened to him in the foxhole, as it were. And so... In his situation, we had to say, no, you can't, not until you, you understand this. And the same applies to our children. I think baptizing a child is about as effective as baptizing your cat. It, 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 it's a futile act because the child has to have faith. And faith in the Bible is a persuasion that these things are true. So we're not saying that they are Christians because they're our children. We're not trying to make them Christians by what we do this evening. What we are doing is this. We're offering up a prayer to God and a promise to God about about these children. A prayer, first of all, that we want these kids to be entrusted into God's hands. Just as, you know the story of Hannah, who was barren, she went to the temple and she prayed and God heard her prayer and she became pregnant and she promised God, she said she offered this child back to God in prayer and said that he belongs to God. And Samuel was the result, one of the greatest prophets in the the history of Israel. So what we're doing tonight is we're wanting to offer up a prayer, but also a promise. And this is where I want us to get to the heart of what we need to think about this evening. The promise is this. 
that so far as it depends on us as parents and on you as members of this church, if you indeed call this your family, that it's our hope and our commitment that we want to raise these children with, a, with an understanding and a reason to follow Jesus. But that leads us to the huge and important question. How can you, in the face of all the trends of society at large, how can you offer your children a big enough reason to love Jesus and to be a Christ follower in this day and age? And what I want to say, just coming from these verses, will hopefully help some of you if you have kids or will have kids. I'm sure many of you are thinking about it one day. It'll help some of you who are doubters, who... um, Tim's shaking his head vigorously. <laughs> Absolutely no intention to have children. Um, it'll help some of you. <laughs> I saw that. It'll help some of you who are doubters, who are thinking, I'm not sure why, I, how I can believe. You're wrestling with doubts. And it helps some of you who are seekers, who are thinking, what good reason is there for me to believe? And I want us to think about three things that answer those issues of the intellectual, the moral, the emotional reasons why people want to disregard Christianity and Christ. And I want to take it from these verses. First of all, the intellectual issue. It begins, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You have to understand that this statement is a kind of a war statement. That when the people of Israel were surrounded by all kinds of nations who believed all kinds of things with all kinds of competing faith claims, much as we are experiencing that today, a pluralistic society, this statement is the most absolute categorical way of stating there is only one God and he alone can tell you what truth is. I know that that kind of an absolute claim is, is the least popular kind of statement that you can make in this day and age. It's like it's like trying to, to cross a six-lane motorway blindfolded without being hit by traffic when this kind of a statement smashes against the way that the culture thinks. Because most people just believe that there's absolutely no way you could possibly know that God, there's one God or who that God is or how you get to that God. How could you know it in view of all the competing claims that are out there? And so... Really, when we're wanting to tell our children, and I'm wanting to tell you also today, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's a categorical statement. It's something echoed by Jesus in his teaching when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. These are not the kind of things you can wriggle around or kind of squirm away from under. These are absolute claims that you have to confront. And people say, look, if you want to make these kinds of statements... First of all, you're arrogant. You're arrogant to believe that you could know truth in view of everything that's on offer out there at the moment. I mean, how could you possibly claim that you have some kind of a monopoly on truth? So people say we're arrogant, and they also say that it's abusive to to raise your children or to tell other people these kind of claims in a way that's confident and categorical. They say people ought to be free to choose for themselves. Now, how on earth am I going to answer that? Are we arrogant to, to want to raise our, chi- our children to, to think that this is true? Are we abusive to cut off, as it were, options by indoctrinating them, to use the language of people who criticize us? Let me put it to you like this. I, I, would, I would agree with that. I would agree with all of that if it were not for 
for Jesus. And I'll tell you why. I want you to imagine with me for a moment that imagine we were all drugged and um, some gas was released into this room and we all fell into a deep sleep and we wake up at some unknown time and all our memory has been utterly eradicated and the doors are locked, it's dark through the windows, we know nothing about the world outside of us. Over time, speculations would begin to arise, wouldn't they? As we begin to wonder, what is outside of the walls of this amazing universe in which we live? With its beige walls and its, uh, <laughs> its, its sort of pink, fading uh, wall behind me. And you start to wonder, what is outside all of this? And first of all, we go to sleep one night and somebody wakes up. And um, you know, it's probably one of the slightly more crazy ones among us. I think it would probably be Chloe. Chloe wakes up and she says, I have a dream. I've seen the world outside of this place. And she begins to preach about the world that lies beyond these walls about which we know nothing. And so she's a kind of prophet figure. And some of you begin to think, yeah, Chloe's, she's very loud, at least, so we can definitely follow her. And then, we, and then another day, uh, someone else comes along, and it's really probably the cleverest guy in the room. So let's say it's Jamie. Jamie's just says, yeah, he's feeling good about himself. We're just bigging Jamie up. Just need to rub his, uh, his ego a little bit. Anyway, um, he starts to philosophize about what's outside the room. He says, no, your speculations don't matter. I'll tell you what, what is true. And he starts to reason his way to, to the meaning of life and the universe as we see it. And so a philosopher emerges among us. And then sometime later, the secularists arise. And someone among us is a scientist. The scientist. It might even be my wife. Uh, she's a doctor, so maybe she qualifies for this. And she begins to, to measure things and, 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 and establish the laws about, about how the universe works and says, we can't possibly know anything beyond the, these four walls. All we can know is things like speed and velocity and the things that we can measure and touch and know about with absolute certainty. And so the scientists tell us what to believe. And some of us follow them. Now, if you're caught in that situation, you know that all these claims are just competing claims. There's no way you can ever really, categorically, objectively be able to decide which of these things is absolutely true. But then something happens. You hear the rattle, the jangle of keys at the door. And the door is unlocked, and a man walks in from outside. And immediately we begin to flock around this man, and he begins to tell us things that only he could know because he came from outside the room to inside the room. Now that's the claim that we make about Jesus. That while there are all kinds of speculations that are circulating in the world, only Christ came from the outside to the inside. So when people say to me, listen, it's arrogant for you to confidently claim that you have the truth, I say the opposite. I say, actually, it'd be quite arrogant for me to argue with Jesus. He came from outside the room I've just got speculations to deal with inside the room. If I start questioning him, I'm the arrogant one. If I accept what he has to say, that's the essence of humility. And people say, well, what about the abuse thing? I say it's abusive in a sense to disregard what Jesus has to say to us. I remember watching a little while ago a video um, by the famous magician Penn Gillette. Gillet? I don't know how you say his name. Anyway, he's, he's an atheist, he's a secularist, he's very outspoken, and he's very famous. 
And he, he, he tells a story of an encounter he had when he left one of his gigs one evening. And a, and a guy came up to him and handed him a Bible, like a Gideon Bible. And he said, he put it in his hands, knowing that Penn is an atheist. And he, he starts to talk on camera about his reaction to this. And he says, you know, what he's trying to put across is that he wasn't in any way annoyed by this, even though he doesn't believe. And he starts to say this. He says, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. In other words, who don't share what they believe. He says, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and that you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Friends, when we're wanting to put across, firstly to our children, but then anyone who will listen, that Christ answers the intellectual needs for truth. This isn't arrogant and it certainly isn't abusive. It's just a stance which says, I think, he's, I think what he said is actually true. Let me tell you secondly, we want to tell our children how to live and so offer them something in the face of the big moral question. A lot of people think that we don't need Christianity for morality. But he goes on in the next verse, he says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your might. I'm sure most of you realize that this verse, along with uh, a verse in Leviticus 19, where it says you shall love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus said that these are among the most important verses in the entirety of the Hebrew Scriptures. Why? Because he says, by these two commands, you can basically sum up the entirety of God's will that we're called to love God and that we're called to love our neighbors. Everything else is just a footnote to those two great commands. I know that when you first say that, a lot of people these days are going to think, amen, I can agree with that. Preach love all day long and I'm with you all the way. And so you probably recognize like the sentiment behind, this is one of the great hymns of our age where he says things like this. He says, imagine... There's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. No religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. We can imagine that, can't we? He says, imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need to, for greed or hunger. A brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. It's kind of this gooey image of love, isn't it? That we all heartily want to say, wow, I can kind of imagine a world in which that kind of peace reigned. So a lot of people think, when we, say, when we start talking about love as Christians, love God, love your neighbor, they say, well, that sounds pretty decent to me. I think I can go along with that to some extent. But listen, when Christ was calling these words out of Deuteronomy 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. He was saying something which is more searching and more difficult than I think probably you've ever even realized. He was saying something down these lines, that you cannot do good unless this is true of you. You can't be a good person, a righteous person, unless God comes first in your life. Now, how on earth can Christ say that to us, given that we know, we look around us, we see all kinds of people that we think are good people? How can he say that? Well, let me give you a couple of answers. One is this, that it's partly, it's partly about knowing what God means by good in the first place. The Oxford Don, C.S. Lewis, was an atheist, one of the cleverest, most articulate men of the last century. And during his tenure at Oxford, at one point, he, 
he came to a, a radical transformation of mind when he became a Christian. And when he began talking about what compelled him to change his mind, he went on radio during the war in the 1940s and gave a number of sort of short talks that became the book Mere Christianity. One of the great reasons that weighed with him was this issue, the issue of morality, of how we can know right and wrong unless we first know God. So in one of his lectures, he put it like this. He said, he's talking about his days before he was a Christian. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. You've heard that one many times, I'm sure. How can there be a good God with so much evil around us? And he went on, he said, but how had I got this idea of just, or you could say of goodness, and of unjust, or of badness? He says, a man doesn't call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? He goes on, of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. So he could have gotten rid of the problem of where he got good and bad from by just saying that there is no such thing as good and bad. But he says, if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. So many people around us assume that there is morality, that there is rightness and wrongness, that there is goodness and badness, that there is justice and injustice. We feel it in our gut, but very few people come face to face with this question. Where does it come from? And how can we be held to something objective, something beyond us, something bigger than us, something that is that a lawgiver who gives us the law upon which we stand? We're just left with our kind of private fancies, as Lewis puts it, or our preferences, our personal preferences. I was watching a Louis Theroux documentary a little while ago, where he goes into, I think it's called Behind Bars, he goes into one of America's worst jails. You know these guys are like, they're put in jail for a reason, and that's an understatement. These guys should never be let out. And he encounters one man called David Silver, and apparently he was sentenced to 521 years in prison plus 11 life sentences. So we can safely say he, he doesn't, he's not going to get out. And in talking, we're not told what this guy did, except that he was an armed robber and a torturer, but we don't know much of the detail around that. But it says, he starts to talk to Louis Theroux, this man Silver, and he says, okay, let's say this. Maybe some of the things that thrill you won't thrill me. The things that thrill your cameraman won't thrill you or thrill me. You see what I'm saying? Just like the things that thrill me obviously won't thrill you guys. So he's trying to say, listen, how do we know who's right and who's wrong here? We all have different preferences. And Louis Theroux answers, but maybe the things that thrill me aren't the things that are going to get me 500 years in prison and Silver answers, well, that's the thing right there. He can see something which few people see. That when morality just basically boils down to the strongest will of the majority, it's not really morality at the end of the day, is it? It's been really fascinating to me this week to see Germaine Greer, who was once the kind of the darling of the liberal left, now almost regarded as a fascist because she doesn't believe that men who have operations can become women in an objective way. Now, she's true to her convictions, and she's certainly allowed to have them, of course, and, and, but the other end of the veteran, people are, are, are labeling her all kinds of things and threatening her and calling it hate speech and all this kind of stuff. And you think, how does that happen? 
that someone can move from that end to that end in people's regard so quickly. And isn't it because we are basically adrift with no idea of what right and wrong really are or where they come from? We just kind of make it up as we go along according to what feels right in the moment, which is not much different from what that man in prison was saying about his morality. Friends, when the Bible says here, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your might. What it's saying is, that's the first block upon which you build the entire structure of your life. And if that's not there, nothing else holds together. Finally, we want to give them an intellectual answer. We want to give them the moral answer. But we also want to tell our children something of the emotional answer. And it comes down to this, that we want to show them that life is about living for one thing. When you read on in this passage, I want you just to think about the degree of obsession in this household that God is calling for with his will and his ways. He says, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The picture that's being painted here is of a family whose whole existence And family identity is built around knowing God and knowing his ways and wanting to please God. They're a family who basically are obsessed with this, if we can use language that strong. Even fanatical. I know that's kind of a dirty word these days, but you get what I mean. That They've got the first thing first and everything else is secondary and subsidiary to that. We all have some obsession at the core of our hearts that drives us. You have something that's compelling you in life. Something that drives you to do what you do, to dream about what you dream about, to head in the direction you're heading. And the only question is whether that thing is meaningful in any ultimate sense. I was amazed the other day. We were watching Graham Norton on iPlayer. And uh, we saw the, the episode, the first and the latest series, where Matt Damon begins speaking about his, um, his experience of winning an Oscar for the film Goodwill Hunting at the age of 27. So these guys have been working for five years on that film. They were totally unknown, Ben Affleck and, and Matt Damon. And then out of the blue, for that extraordinary movie, they deservedly win an Oscar. And Graham Norton, he asked, he asked Matt Damon this question. He said, that night... Must have sent you into a, spe- a tailspin. Did you go crazy that night? I suppose he's got pictures of you know, Justin Bieber and all these child stars who just go mental the minute they have fame. And Damon answers this. He says, actually, I remember going back with my girlfriend at the time. We went to her house. She went to sleep. And seriously, I couldn't, I couldn't sleep. I was still buzzing and just sitting there. And I remember very clearly looking at that award and thinking very, very clearly. I literally looked at it and I was alone with it. And I said to myself, thank God. I didn't F anybody over for this. And I suddenly had this kind of thing wash over me where I thought, imagine chasing that and not getting it. 
And getting it finally in your 80s or your 90s with all of life behind you and realizing what an unbelievable waste of your... Because I can't, you, mean, you know what I mean? I can't, it can't fill you up. If that's a hole that you have, that won't fill it. Right? And I felt so blessed to have that awareness at 27 because I wouldn't have known it unless I knew it. And I literally, my heart broke for a second. It's like I imagined another one of me, you know, an old man kind of going, Oh my God, where did my life go? What have I done? And then it's over. I think he's got more insight into this stuff than most people do. I was amazed by that. And it presses the question on you. What is it that drives you? What is it that you are hungering and searching and seeking after? Because I want to impress upon my children with absolute unwavering certainty that unless a life is lived for God, it is ultimately going to to be meaningless in the end. And I'm not embarrassed or ashamed to say it. And I don't say it with a lump in my throat or a quiver in my voice. I absolutely believe that. Nothing else in life can hold the weight of your expectations and hopes. And your search for meaning. One of my favorite movies as a child was the the film Chariots of Fire. And it tells really the story. The two main characters are Harold Abrahams and Eric Little. Both of them extraordinarily talented runners. Harold Abrahams is a tortured personality because he's driven inside and he knows he's hungering after meaning in life. And there's this powerful scene in the film where he's about to run the 100-meter final in the Paris Olympics in 1926, and it's one hour before the final takes place. He's lying on his front, being massaged by a masseur, preparing for the race, and he's talking to his friend Aubrey, who's just across the room. And he says this. He says, you, Aubrey are my most complete man. You're brave, compassionate, kind, a content man. That's your secret, contentment. I'm 24, and I've never known it. I'm forever in pursuit, and I don't even know what I'm chasing. Aubrey, old man, I'm scared. In one hour's time, I'll be out there again. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor, four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? Aubrey, I've known the fear of losing, but now I'm almost too frightened to win. Everything else in life will disappoint you in the end. Nothing else can hold the weight of your desires, your longings, your hopes and aspirations. The character of Harold Abrahams is contrasted with Eric Little who loves to run. But he's got it in its right perspective. And there's an amazing scene again in the film where his sister Jenny comes to him on the hillside. and She starts to try and persuade him not to go to the Olympics, not to waste the time, because they're a highly devout family. He, she knows that he wants to go and be a missionary on the mission field. And Eric Little answers her in this way. He says, I believe God made me for a purpose. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. When I read these verses about what it means to be a family that puts God at the center, I think that it is exactly what Eric Little's describing. To be people who, who want to live for the pleasure of God and feel the pleasure of God in how they're living. So that you understand that everything you do is for him and infused with his delight. These things need to be written 
on your walls, on your doorposts. You talk about them. You bind them to your hands. Everything is infused with significance and meaning when it's done for and to God. And I think that a lot of people will probably think, well, listen, this is far too much to put on your children or to put on anyone else for that matter. How can you lay upon people such a heavy burden that you need to live for God? How can we possibly experience joy in life when we're crushed by the weight of the expectations of a holy God? And friends, if it were just about teaching my children a list of rules, I would agree with you with all my heart. Jesus said in one of the Gospels, when he's criticizing religious folk, he says they tie up heavy burdens. He's talking metaphorically, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Jesus had nothing but compassion for people who felt the weight of feeling like you could never please a holy God. And when I talk about living a life with God at the center, I don't want my children to grow up thinking, that they have to somehow attain to some level which is unattainable. I want them rather to understand what the Bible tells us about the love of God. It's it's everywhere, but here's one verse. It says this, in this is love. Here's a biblical definition of what God's love is. It's this, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I don't want my children to grow up thinking that the Christian life is just about following a bunch of rules. I want them to grow up knowing and feeling the love of God. And how do you feel it? It's through what John describes there that God showed his love in giving his son to be the propitiation, which means a sacrifice, a sacrifice of atonement for our sins. This is described by the prophet Isaiah seven centuries before Jesus was born when he's describing this figure of the man who would die for the sins of the people. And he writes this. He says, Surely he, this man who is to come, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed and stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. In other words, we disregarded him. But he says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. In other words, none of us is perfect. And I can't expect perfection of my children. We've all gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But he says, and the Lord laid on him, laid on that man, the iniquity, the sin, of us all. I don't want my children to grow up feeling nothing but law and nothing but guilt and nothing but condemnation. I want them to grow up and I want you also to come to know in increasing measure that Christ has carried your sin and that that changes everything. If God loved you enough to send Jesus to the cross, he can accept you in all of your brokenness and mess and imperfection and he can begin to heal you and bind you up. That's what I want to tell my children and that's what I would want to tell anyone who would listen. It's the essence of what Christians believe. It's all God and not us. It's all his kindness and not our works. 
It's all his initiative. And we just respond to what he has done for us.